This is our second study in the book of Job, uh, looking at parts of chapters 3 through 8. In them, Job finds his voice. He and his friends begin to argue. The pattern of the book is simple. Within the frame given by the prose of the first two and the last chapters, and following an opening speech from Job, there are three cycles of speeches. Eliphaz, Job, Bildad, Job, Zophar, Job, and round twice more. That should be three times six, which is eighteen speeches, but the last speech of Zophar is lost, perhaps deliberately, to show the answers are incomplete. The next chapter after these cycles of speeches, number 28, is a poem to wisdom. That is followed by a speech of Job and a lengthy rant by a fourth guy, Elihu. Only then do we hear from the Lord God himself, pointing out how Job has failed to understand what has happened and to learn from it. Then finally, there is an epilogue, probably drawn from the old tale, which is used to teach one final fundamental lesson about life. The poetic dialogue begins after those first two chapters of prose we thought about last time. Job expresses his total horror at what has happened to him in chapter 3. His first friend Eliphaz tries to analyse what has happened to him. Job replies, and then a second friend, Bildad, speaks, expressing his view of Job's problems more openly and clearly than Eliphaz did. I will read chapter 3, then a little of what Eliphaz said in chapter 4, and part of Job's reply. Then we will skip to what Bildad says in chapter 8, and Job's reply. Here is Job's lament in chapter 3, the first 19 verses. Note how striking the poetry is. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. He said, May the day of my birth perish, and the night that said, A boy is conceived. That day, may it turn to darkness. May God above not care about it. May no light shine on it. May gloom and utter darkness claim it once more. May a cloud settle over it. May blackness overwhelm it. That night, may thick darkness seize it. May it not be included among the days of the year, nor be entered in any of the months. May that night be barren. May no shout of joy be heard in it. May those who curse days curse that day. Those who are ready to rouse Leviathan, may its morning stars become dark. May it wait for daylight in vain, and not see the first rays of dawn. For it did not shut the doors of the womb on me to hide trouble from my eyes. Why did I not perish at birth and die as I came from the womb? Why were there knees to receive me and breasts that I might be nursed? For now I would be lying down in peace. I would be asleep and at rest with kings and rulers of the earth, who built for themselves places now lying in ruins, with princes who had gold, who filled their houses with silver. For why was I not hidden away 
in the ground like a stillborn child, like an infant who never saw the light of day. There the wicked cease from turmoil, and there the weary are at rest. Captives also enjoy their ease. They no longer hear the slave driver's shout. The small and the great are there, and the slaves are freed from their master. All that is very understandable. There is next to no sign in the Old Testament that they had any idea of a life after death, except a descent to Sheol, for an experience they knew nothing about. The New Testament is very different. There we find statements like, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up in life. That's in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 4. A question then. Why the difference between the Old Testament ideas and those of the New Testament? What should our reaction be? The answer, of course, this all hinges on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Death is swallowed up in victory, as Paul says. We know that we should never share these negative attitudes of Job. Whatever happens to us, in this life. At this point I will skip to the next chapter, because the last few verses of that chapter do not add much to the argument of the book. I will be doing this throughout these studies, picking out the most interesting and important bits of the book. That isn't to say that it's not worth reading it all. It is. Here then are the first nine verses of chapter 4. Then Eliphaz the Temanite replied, If someone ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? But who can keep from speaking? Think how you have instructed many, how you have strengthened feeble hands. Your words have supported those who stumbled. You have strengthened faltering knees. But now trouble comes to you, and you are discouraged. It strikes you... And you are dismayed. Should not your piety be your confidence, and your blameless ways your hope? Consider now, who being innocent has ever perished? Where were the upright ever destroyed? As I have observed, those who plough evil, and those who sow trouble, reap it. At the breath of God they perish. At the blast of his anger, they are no more. Eliphaz asks a very sharp and important question to all those of us who make a Christian profession. He says, Should not your piety be your confidence, and your blameless ways your hope? In other words, he is asking whether Job was righteous just because it was the best thing to be from his point of view. Are we Christians because this is the best option? We can live more comfortable lives as Christians, or as sometimes Christians, when it suits us. We can keep the family happy. It sounds good in the community. We want to go to heaven when we die. Hmm... A question. Are you a Christian for these or any other selfish, 
you-based reasons. The answer is yours, obviously. We should be Christian. We should be following Jesus because we feel compelled to do so by who he is and what he has done for us, oblivious to our own immediate comforts. 200 years ago, those who went on mission to the west coast of Africa lived on average for only a few months before they caught one of the lethal diseases of that area to which they had no natural immunity. They did not consider themselves, their own comforts, and even their own lives as of any significant account in the service of the king. Neither should we. Eliphaz continues in chapter 4, verses 12 to 21. In a very striking passage, he says he's had a dream, which introduces the idea that will persist throughout all the speeches of all Job's four friends, if friends they can be called, that Job must have done something very wicked for all this to have happened to him. I'm going to read those verses. A word was secretly brought to me. My ears caught a whisper of it. Amid disquieting dreams in the night, when deep sleep falls on people, fear and trembling seized me and made all my bones shake. A spirit glided past my face, and the hair on my head stood on end. It stopped, but I could not tell what it was. A form stood before my eyes, and I heard a hushed voice. Can a mortal be more righteous than God? Can even a strong man be more pure than his Maker? If God places no trust in his servants, if he charges his angels with error, how much more those who live in houses of clay, whose foundations are in the dust, who are crushed more readily than a moth, between dawn and dusk they are broken to pieces, unnoticed they perish for ever. Are not the cords of their tent pulled up so that they die without wisdom? Part of Job's reply is in chapter 6, various verses between verse 2 and verse 30, which I will read now. If only my anguish could be weighed, and all my misery be placed on the scales, it would surely outweigh the sand of the seas. No wonder my words have been impetuous. The arrows of the Almighty are in me. My spirit drinks in their poison. God's terrors are marshalled against me. Anyone who withholds kindness from a friend forsakes the fear of the Almighty. But my brothers are as undependable as intermittent streams, as the streams that overflow when darkened by thawing ice and swollen with melting snow, but that stop flowing in the dry season and in the heat vanish from their channels. Now you too have proved to be of no help. You see something dreadful and are afraid. Have I ever said, give something on my behalf, 
pay a ransom for me from your wealth? Deliver me from the hand of the enemy? Rescue me from the clutches of the ruthless? Teach me, and I will be quiet. Show me where I have been wrong. How painful are honest words. But what do your arguments prove? You mean to correct what I say? And treat my desperate words as wind? You would even cast lots for the fatherless and butter away your friend. But now, be so kind as to look at me. Would I lie to your face? Relent. Do not be unjust. Reconsider, for my integrity is at stake. Is there any wickedness on my lips? Can my mouth not discern malice? That brings a reply from his second friend, Bildad, in chapter 8. Then Bildad the Shuite replied, How long will you say such things? Your words are a blustering wind. Does God pervert justice? Does the Almighty pervert what is right? When your children sinned against him, he gave them over to the penalty of their sin. But if you will seek God earnestly and plead with the Almighty, if you are pure and upright, even now he will rouse himself on your behalf and restore you to your prosperous state. Your beginnings will seem humble, so prosperous will your future be. Ask the former generation and find out what their ancestors learned. For we were born only yesterday and know nothing, and our days on earth are but a shadow. Will they not instruct you and tell you? Will they not bring forth words from their understanding? Can papyrus grow tall where there is no marsh? Can reeds thrive without water? While still growing and uncut, they wither more quickly than grass. Such is the destiny of all who forget God. So perishes the hope of the godless. What they trust in is fragile. What they rely on is a spider's web. They lean on the web, but it gives way. They cling to it, but it does not hold. They are like a well-watered plant in the sunshine, spreading its shoots over the garden. It entwines its roots around a pile of rocks and looks for a place among the stones. But when it is torn from its spot, that place disowns it and says, I never saw you. Surely its life withers away, and from the soil other plants grow. Surely God does not reject one who is blameless, or strengthen the hands of evildoers. He will yet fill your mouth with laughter, and your lips with shouts of joy. Your enemies will be clothed in shame, and the tents of the wicked will be no more. It is now clear that the friends, and even Job himself, are working from the assumption that bad things only happen to bad people. Therefore, Job must be in so much trouble because he is a bad person, having undisclosed sin in his life, which he is hiding from them and even from himself. We know what they don't know that that is not the case.
Job has experienced all his troubles only as a result of what the author has described as a discussion in the heavenly council. Or in other words, he is ex experiencing what I called the NCL, the normal chaos of life. We have to accept that sometimes things just happen for no reason that we can discern. Sometimes things happen because of other people. It was the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans that stole all Job's huge herds of oxen, donkeys and camels. But sometimes it is natural forces. It was lightning and storm that killed his sheep, his servants and his children. That is our experience too. Some of the chaos of life we experience is because other people unwittingly or deliberately have disturbed the even progress of our existence. Some of the chaos is because of all sorts of natural things, tsunamis and storms, illness and accident, which may have deeply affected our lives. That is the way the world is. For us, as for Job, we don't know why the world is this way, why it is so full of chaos, though we may think that a world in which there were no storms, no winds, no floods, would be a very boring and uninteresting place. God the Lord has never promised to protect us from such things. He has promised to protect us through them. Isaiah said, speaking for the Lord to his people, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Saviour. He does not say, I will help you to avoid the rivers and dodge the fires. But when you are in them, battling with them, I will be with you. Job will eventually understand by the end of the book, but he is not there yet. He does not understand about the NCL, the normal chaos of life. Nor does he realize that the CEP does not work. There is no cause-effect principle operating in moral and ethical life. Our piety does not protect us from what Job calls the arrows of the Almighty in chapter 6, which possibly gave rise to Shakespeare's phrase, the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. Jesus clearly agrees. When told about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices, he says, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those eighteen who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. We simply have to accept that the world we're in, the created world, created by our loving God, 
is subject to the normal chaos of life and that no principle of cause-effect operates. Too many people, too many Christians, try to convince themselves that there is no such thing as the normal chaos of life. They say that the Lord is in control, so there cannot be chaos. He is indeed in control, but we do not know what he is doing or why. So we are far better to accept that it looks like chaos to us and get on with living in our chaotic-looking world. Too many people, too many Christians, think that the cause-effect principle does operate and get very upset, sometimes even losing their faith, when it doesn't work the way they think it should. They say things like, My lovely son or daughter died. Life's not fair, so I can't believe in God any more. Why do they do that? He never promised a cause-effect principle. Why should he be blamed when it is clear that there isn't one.